So you might have um, heard the expression spoken here or elsewhere, uh, the term practical atheist. I'm sure you've, many of you have heard that. I know you have. Practical, practical atheist could be uh, a sworn and professed atheist, indeed, right? They would definitely fall in the camp of a practical atheist. Um, their, their false belief that there is no God. Yeah, so they're going to be practical about that in their ways. But usually when we hear this phrase, it's, it's saved for those who would never think of professing to be an atheist. But, you know, the way that they live their lives implies that they are not considering God. Practically an atheist, if you will. Not avowedly. But practically, I guess it could be even more accurate to consider a practical agnostic uh, because they're not necessarily adamant in their philosophy that there is no God. They just don't care or seem to care in the way they live their lives. Either way, it should be a shame as a Christian to be accused of wearing such a label at any time. Well, our passage today, our passage today exposes a tendency that sadly is common among man. And Christians are not exempt from living out this same tendency. You know, that is a tendency for your daily life and your pursuits to seem as if God's will and his providence are ignored passage, I believe, exposes a dangerous weakness that was prevalent in the church in James's day and in our day to do as well. We must not ignore his exhortation here. So please, with your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 4, and we will be closing out the chapter this morning, verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. The text reads, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Our daily lives how we fill them and what we're doing you know what we prioritize and, and pursue during those our, our lives day to day this speaks more of the faith that we possess than the faith that our lips proclaim again it's in the doing that james has been stressing you know observing the behavior of the christians James is writing to these these believers in the dispersion, he points out 
their arrogant hearts, stemming from a pride of life that boasts of things well beyond their control and warns them it is not their will but the Lord's will that prevails and must be obeyed. They must think about these things prayerfully. Knowing our nature that is still prone to sin as Christians, we must follow the apostles' warning here and deny our hearts' arrogant and prideful view of life. You know, humbly commit ourselves to the Lord's sovereign control over all things. And obey not our will, but the Lord's will. So, beloved, what is the pride of your life? From this passage, by the grace of God, I, I aim to help expose some of the idols that you may be protecting. And when you seek various ways to serve your pride of life. Now, how do I know these, these idols that you suffer with? Because the spirit that God has given me also wars against these things. You know, my prayer is that by, again, God's grace, in accordance with his perfect will, we may see victory in smashing these idols, because that's what they are, smashing these idols one day at a time. And I have three applications that I'm going to be using as a tool to help call these out. Well, first is, number one, repent of your pride of life that makes you trade eternity for the vanities of the world. I believe we see this in that first verse, verse 13. Secondly, number two, repent of your pride of life that makes you act like you are in ultimate control. I believe we see this in verse 14. And then thirdly, repent of your pride of life that makes you believe you are somehow independent of God and therefore a judge of God. Paul has touched on that already. I I think we see this in verses 15 through 17. You know, that, that sin that humbled our first parents in the garden you know, we've been talking about that lately. You know, that sin that, that boasts of a pride of life without the need of God's permission, his, his mercy or grace, it, that sin still continues to humble us today. In Christ, in Christ, beloved, we can see victory over this form of idolatry. We have to be aware of it. We have to acknowledge this tendency of our hearts. So with that, my first application, repent of your pride of life that makes you trade eternity for the vanities of the world. 
Again, verse 13, come now, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Thomas Manton, Puritan, I've recited a number of times in this book. He observed that James just earlier wrote about people who held the law in contempt by judging it. Remember that? Now, he writes against those who hold providence in contempt. Now, the providence of God, it is tested by man in his arrogance. It's, it's rebellious indeed to do so. It's also a clear practice and futility to do it, understanding who God is. James invites his chosen audience here, you know, those who go and to such and such a town to, to make a profit. His chosen audience here of believers, of believers, to consider what it is that they are doing and what it is they are saying. Think about this, folks. Are their daily lives being spent in a way that acknowledges God as they ought? Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Are you looking at things rightly? Verse 13, although it, it, it may appear that James is talking to only those who are, are marketing and trade, much like our, our modern-day businessman, he truly is not limiting his exhortation here to any one group of people. So we can't just get off on that if you're, you know, let's say in, in the education world and you're not a businessman. Now, he means to indict all Christians here, and he does, of this feudal tendency that we may have, or rather, we do have. You know, it's evident, I believe, that he does this, indicts all of us, and how verse 14 broadens his audience, because it can be said of all people that we are a mist, right? We are. We're all a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, the you in verse 14. Draw, circle that you in verse 14 and draw it to the you who say in, in verse 13. They're connected. Okay? They're connected. James is rebuking any kind of, clearly, the obvious uh, understanding here. He's, he's rebuking any kind of planning for the future that, that stems from an arrogance that boasts of an ability to determine the course of future events. You know, when people, again, including Christians, 
when they plan and act in such a way, they begin to trade eternity for the vanities of the world. You know, it's, it is evident from the way you live each day that your hope and priorities are to be ordered from an internal, heavenly perspective. We are called to live that way. To be hoping for Christ's return. To be building up treasures in heaven. But could it be that you're toiling to work out a living for hope of things that are really more transient here on earth? Are you anxious because of these things? These earthly rewards? He's not demonizing wealth. He's not. It's the pursuit of these things that takes a priority in your life that draws you away from heavenly things. Now, our hearts are bound to do this. There's a story I want to share of a, a wreck of a ship, a shipwreck. There was a, a terrible storm at sea that this ship endured. Well, on the wreck, tied very tightly to the mast, were a number of clinging shipmates, clinging for their lives. They are almost frostbitten from the cold weather, and they were drenched through and through from that cold, salty water coming on them. But then, as the story goes, there went out the lifeboat. So the hope was that they would soon be rescued from their perilous position. One thing's for certain, that there would not be a man among them who would raise an objection to being saved at that moment. They saw it clearly. No, whatever may have been their their previous position in life up to this point, whatever their worldview may have been, their habits or tastes or, or anything else, they would all be equally happy to welcome a friendly lifeboat and be taken on board such a vessel of mercy. Suppose that's what you have in those foxhole conversions in some way, right? Yet, as the story goes, it is not a strange thing that when we look at poor, miserable humanity, which has become a total wreck, poor souls clinging to a sinking ship with hopes that must certainly be disappointed in the end. And then comes Jesus. Then comes Jesus, appearing within the storm, willing and most able to save them, save them to the uttermost. That there are multitudes It's amazing how there are multitudes who raise all sorts of objections to being saved by him. Now, Jesus is not the Savior they would like to have. 
or rather his way of saving sinners, is not what they approve of, his way of doing it. They are, as a matter of fact, in all manner of difficulties that have been invented, suffering in these different ways, you know, often finding themselves boasting of a wisdom, a wisdom that excuses their deniability, how Christ is the wrong way to go, you know, which really only proofs that are there for showing that they are futile in their thinking, and there's a vanity about them. They prefer rather to be lost rather than to be saved by a Savior in such a way, and in the way that he's ordained. They want to coddle their appetite for the things of the world. You know, brothers and sisters, praise God. He has called us to him and saved us. But there's, in many ways, we can be guilty of coddling these same things. In a weak faith. John Flavel, he once said that, whatsoever we have overloved, idolized, and leaned upon, God has from time to time broken it and made us to see the vanity of it so that we may find the readiest course to be rid of our comforts is to set our hearts inordinately or immoderately upon them. In other words, the quickest way to lose those things in the world that bring us comfort, that bring Christians comfort, is to put our hope and trust in them. That's the quickest way to, to lose them. For our God is a jealous God, and he will not part with his glory to another. In the way he may part us with those things may require a severe beating. It is a true statement, beloved, that that people tend to become in mirror what their hearts desire. And it usually starts out seemingly innocently, in an innocent innocent way. You know, desiring perhaps to, to make a good start in the world. You know, even wanting to provide well for your family. Make a good living. You know, God doesn't condemn taking advantage of a good work ethic. And living wisely and making plans. He calls us to do these things. Rather, he promotes them. They're in part of the, these principles we read of in Scripture. But he does expect us to do all these things in full acknowledgement of his sovereignty. And that's what James is calling out here. These people who often do these things, they are not acknowledging God in doing these things. They're not in submission to his providence. In Genesis 11, Scripture talks about as, as people started to migrate from the east... They settled in the land, and they said to one another, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, 
lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel, right? Well, they planned it all out. You know, Scripture talks about, you know, we're going to need these, these bricks. You know, we're going we're gonna to bake them. We're going to need pitch and bitumen for the mortar. They, they planned it all out. All the materials that were going to be needed. But their plans were as unholy as the intentions of their hearts. They wanted to make a name for themselves, Scripture says. Not to exalt the name of God. They rejected, yet again, as their pre-flood descendants, that command of God to rule and have dominion over the earth for the purpose of what, church? For the purpose of expanding the glory of God over his creation to the nations. Well, they wanted to make a name for themselves, much like whom G, uh, James is talking about here. You know, every time that man acts in, in this way, that seeks, seeking to na- make a name for himself, you know, building earthly treasures, you know, building some notoriety for himself, he acts in opposition to his role as steward of God's creation and spreading the glory of God. He trades God's glory for his own glory. James wants us to see and realize the extent of what it is we are doing when we do this. Trading eternity for the vanities of the world. What a foolish thing to do. Beloved, what is it for you that binds your heart in such a manipulating way to the earth instead of to heaven? Repent of this thing, whatever that is. Let me just name one. The sin of failing to come to God in prayer. That's one of the most common offenses a Christian commits in this way. Repent of this sin of omission that makes plans without the counsel of God. The second application here in this passage. Repent of your pride of life that makes you act like you are in ultimate control. James explains in verse 14 the futility of of the planning that this businessman makes he says yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes now this verse vividly portrays the temporal nature of our lives on earth Just a mist. We all suffer the curse of a mortal life because of Adam's sin. And James is very frank here. He he asks his readers, what is your life? Asking, in effect, how can you, 
Christian? How can you, being a creature who cannot even take credit for his beginning, who will die someday, how can you begin to presume that you can determine how your future will go with certainty? We make plans. We should make plans. We should make plans. Scripture attests to this time and time again. I I don't think there's a need for me to probably stress that with you. Acknowledge God in your plan making, James says. Psalm 144 verse 4 talks about our transient nature here on earth. It says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow passing shadow. Psalm 39 verse 5, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. All mankind. And as James has already said regarding the rich man, that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich man, as the world would see it, the best of us, he is going to pass away like a flower of the grass. The fragility of, of human life and the consequent uncertainty of all of our affairs, all of our plans that are associated, that, that's the main point of the verse here. The, the fragility of it all. It's all in God's hands. Take notice just how transient your life is. And and as much as a person may want to have the power to change his future, ultimately change his future, like all creatures, he's at the mercy of God. He is at the mercy of God. He, can, he craves the control of his life and its circumstances. You know, perhaps primarily the circumstances or the vitality of your life, the health of your life. These things may become that priority, wanting to control it. But he cannot even control the state that he will be in at the end of the day. These things that happen to us in our bodies that we endure, sickness, it is right for us to want to get well. It is right for us to pray for our friends to get well, to to treat them, to help them. But when it becomes something that you're demanding it in such a way that when it doesn't happen, that your faith is impacted, you've gone too far. In Luke 12, verse 15, we see Jesus warning the crowds about a covetousness. And he reminds them that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then in a, a brief parable, he illustrates his point with the rich man who, like we see with James's businessman, made definite plans for acquiring more goods. 
but who was prevented from executing his plans by his sudden death. If you can't control what will happen to you, if we can't control what will happen to us, even in the immediate future, then why do we act like we are in ultimate control sometimes? Again, believing in our heart to a point that we are disappointed to a, at a level of, again, our, our faith being impacted or weakened because it didn't happen. You know, as we become parents and as you grow older, children into adults, take on more responsibilities. You're going to find there are more and more ways to become anxious about things. It's, it is the life that God has assigned to us. These things test our faith. The key theme so much in here in James, you know, living our faith and wisdom, be wise about how you consider and approach your desires and your plans for the future. You know, hold it in your hand, but like I've said before, with an open hand. You may be thinking about that question that James asked here. You may wonder what is the purpose of life if, if we can't control it? What are we doing? spending our time doing if we can't control it. One commentator, Simon Kistemaker, he, he points out, quote, the writer of Ecclesiastes repeatedly, repeatedly mentions life's brevity and the meaningless of man's pursuit of earthly rewards. Nevertheless, at the conclusion of his book, he states the purpose of life which is to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It, it's how the Puritans asked, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's not about accumulating these things these powers, these uh, things that we think control our lives. It is living for the glory of God. Sometimes it's so easy for us to forget how we can be honoring God in our lives. Truly honoring Him. A life defined by chasing the world's wares cannot satisfy you know, the tighter the grip on those things, the tighter the grip that the miser has on his riches, the more miserable he becomes. So what is it? What is it that makes you act like you are in ultimate control? Is it manifested in your fear as you homeschool your children? As you raise your children? Is it seen in the fear that causes you to be discontent 
with the lifestyle that God has provided for you. The job that he has given you. Is it seen in the bad choices that you have made? You know, in hindsight. Choices between perhaps career and family. You know, whatever it is, however it is, beloved of God, you are worth far more to the Lord than those lilies of the field that Christ talked about. You know, how they grow without toiling or spinning away day by day. They are beautiful, those lilies of the field. So much so that it's their beauty that makes the field a desirable place to be. You could say, in a sort of way, they are the glory given to the field. They're just flowers. It's the point of Christ being made here. They're just flowers. You are God's adopted child. If, in fact, you do have Christ as your Lord and Master, your Savior, you honor God by resting in His control of all things. There is such peace in that. Resting in these things, and in, and then this in this resting that God grants, you can see that futility that Solomon speaks of in Ecclesiastes. You know the the vanity of toiling your days away in order to have some perception of control. Repent. Repent. Turn away from it. Therefore, of these areas where you are still holding on to a hope of ultimate control. What is it that you're afraid of? That often, friends, is a good place to start. And how are you dealing with that fear? You know, this doesn't mean you should be indifferent about the choices you make. Well, God's in control. It doesn't matter what I think or choose. No. You can't be indifferent about these choices. But you are also not the sum total of your choices. As if I could make all the right choices and then I, somehow I can ultimately control things. Often that's what we think. We think the formula is if I do this, 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 and this, I did everything right, it should happen. And when it doesn't, your, your world is rocked in some way. But you do. You should be differentiating among your choices in each circumstance between what is best and what is obedience to God's revealed will. In the scriptures, versus just what might feel good and might be most practical. You need to be people of the word of God. Every day. Now I could easily go on and stray off the text here if I wanted to. It'd be real easy for me to do here. But the application that I want you to consider is submitting to God who is in control and waiting on him to guide you in the making of right choices. 
obey his command to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Know what he requires of you. Don't wait for Aaron and I to preach it to you. Obey his command to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. To be able to rightly divide the word of God and pray for wisdom on what to do. As James started this off early in chapter 1. He may make you wait. God may make you wait in order to, to test your faith. But even, even while you are waiting, know this, that God remains in control. And he promises to do good to those who love him and obey him. There's such peace in that. We don't deserve. The third application in this text is repent of your pride of life that makes you believe you are somehow independent of God and therefore a judge of God. So we, we come now to the final verses of our passage. Let me read them one more time. Verse 15. Instead, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The instead, in verse 15, is in response to what was said in verse 13. Instead of saying today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 15 describes what a Christian's attitude should be about living. What our attitude should be. You know, if you break it down, a, a Christian's attitude, says James, should first acknowledge that it is the Lord's will that determines the outcome of everything. Second, you must acknowledge that even your life, even your life is dependent upon the Lord's will. And third, you must see that your actions and what you even can do is subject to the Lord's will. To live and to act, those are all subject to the will of God. You know, we Americans, we often like to say that, you know, we have certain rights that can't be taken away from us. You know, our nation's constitution defends these rights. Our Declaration of Independence refers to many of them as inalienable rights, meaning rights that must not be separated from us, you know, taken from us, inalienable, or later on, unalienable. Can't be taken from us. You know, even among, you know, the, the socialistic nations of the world, you know, at least on paper, People generally agree that each person has a right to their life, a right to live. And they, of course, would be right in thinking this. 
mostly right. Mostly right. John Piper, in his book, Providence, he talks about this. He reminds the reader that, that something as inalienable as our right to live is only a right that we may assert among fellow man. We have no capacity to assert our right to live to God. That is, a right to maintain our mortal lives. He may require it of us, you know, take it at any moment, and he would be just in doing so. The apostle wants us to take this understanding, this understanding, and fold it into our patterns of thought and, and belief. As we determine to live our days, day in and day out, you know, adjusting our attitudes to this way of living, a way of thinking, you know, acknowledging that we owe everything that we have. We owe even our very lives to God so that we may live in obedience to his revealed will. You know, living in submission to his secret will. You know, trust that he will do what is right, what is good, what glorifies him, you know, what does good to us who belong to him. Trusting him in these things. The continuance of life itself, it's contingent upon the will of God. But in light of verse 13, James reminds us that our plans must also be subject to that same condition. Even our plans. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, the Apostle Paul, he lived by this. He learned to live by this saying. As he frequently expressed his submission to the Lord's will and his plans for missionary work. Calvin, John Calvin, he noticed and observed that, that Christ and, and Paul and, and the other apostles, they didn't always state this condition verbally when they made their plans. You know, what's important is not the verbalization here of the phrase, as if it were necessary to say these words, but rather that they would have it as a principle that is fixed in their minds. That they would do nothing without the permission of God. May God see to it that you, beloved, that you would share in wholeheartedly believing this principle for yourselves. How do we get these things ingrained into our minds? We know how to do it with scholastics. We drill and drill and drill. We, we think about it. We pray and ask God, help us to, rem to remember these facts, these multiplication facts, for example. These truths, these things that we need to be fixating our mind upon and God's control, we need to be doing the same thing through the word of God. You know, being shaped by it. In verse 16, James claims here, he says, Do you boast in your hearts 
of an arrogance that makes you believe that you are somehow independent of God. Basically, that's what he's saying. Are you boasting of being independent of God? You know, such boasting is evil. Do you get a certain pride in yourself by planning your future with a confidence that is actually a confidence that's reserved for God alone? Maybe not. Maybe you're quick to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. But beware of your tongue. James has stressed this as well. Beware of your tongue. When we use such words, know that the heart must go along with the tongue. You know, it's this pride of life, this arrogant sense of self-sufficiency that's so characteristic of the world that James condemns here. All of such boasting is evil. You know, the Greeks, they had a word for it, this boastful pride. They called it hubris, an exaggerated pride of self-confidence. You know, the, the writer Homer in the Iliad, he wrote of the havoc that Achilles caused when he took upon such pride. You know, when we do the same thing as people, they, we not only leave God out of account in our planning, but we can even be guilty of bragging about it sometimes. Look what I did. Look how this worked out. Look, this stock I bought. You know, look at what it's doing now. Maybe you never even thank God for what, how things are turning out. Being willing to let it, see it all fly away. We've got to be careful that we're not, in effect, proclaiming some delusion of autonomy here. Some independence from the Lord. Our hearts will naturally want to do this. We must remember... Also, James is not rebuking the people of the world here, but Christians. He warns, therefore, of the tendency of the world to really kind of press us into, press us into its mold. It does a pretty good job at doing that, pressing us into its mold at times. We must resist it, you know, leading us, even sometimes very subtly, to begin to assume that we control the duration or the direction of our lives. We've got to be okay with the Lord changing things like that. In verse 17, finally, in verse 17, James concludes telling us that it is not good enough to know the good we should be doing. We must also be doing it. He's told us already to be doers, not hearers only. You know, this last verse can, at first, when you're reading it here, it can seem like it's an afterthought. Many people have actually claimed that this is, he's just throwing out some wise saying here. This is another command he wants to sneak in. But that's not what's happening here at all. He begins with the word, so. Other translations, like the New American Standard, say, therefore. So we know it's going to be tying to something that's already been said. This means we see this is in context with the paragraph. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Of course, I cut out a portion there, but it's to help us understand how these, he's tying this together. You know, the right thing to do that James is talking about is whatever the Lord wills. That's the right thing to do. We are responsible for even the things that we do not do. Uh, to, to go and piecemeal, separate, chop up the will of God as revealed in his word, and therefore to determine what we will do and what we won't do is to be guilty of what James already warned us of in verse 11 of chapter 4, to become a judge of the law. And by implication, a judge of God himself. Beloved, as you go about your day in a, in a fearful determination to honor the Lord by acknowledging him in all your ways, committing your plans to the Lord, willing by God's grace to wait on him, remember, remember to not neglect doing what he has called you to do. It's hard. I understand that. Often, if when I'm confessing sin, I don't, it's not so easy to think of the things that I haven't done that I should have. Confess that. We're supposed to confess things specifically to the Lord when we ask for, for forgiveness. You, the only way to know these things is to, again, grow in knowledge. It was largely the sin of omission that Jesus charged those who professed to be his friend with neglecting to give him drink when he was thirsty, to welcome him when he was a stranger, to clothe him when he was naked, to visit him in prison. It was largely the sin of omission here. If you are gravely determined to blaze your own path and forge your own future, then you will not only be condemning yourself for your arrogant boasting and pride of life, but you will be guilty of judging the Lord and be responsible for not doing what you're supposed to do. You know, verse 17 is like James's way of saying, oh, by the way, in your boastful arrogance to make things happen according to your will, know that each time you get this wrong and don't do what you're supposed to do, you are also sinning. We can't do this on our own. We can't. It requires us to come to him daily for grace. Beloved, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. God knows it. His law demands perfection. Perfection. And Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly on your behalf. Praise Jesus. As you learn more and more to rest in Christ and enjoy a righteousness that has been purchased for you, commit your life, your thoughts, your plans for the day. For the day. And for tomorrow, to the will of the Lord. 
Pray to him without doubting, as James is instructed, knowing that he delights in answering prayers given in faith, even a weak and fragile faith. Ask him to help you to know his will in whatever it is that providence brings your way. And, and don't fear tomorrow. Don't fear it. He knows tomorrow like it, he knows yesterday. It may be that tomorrow does hold a special trial for you. But don't fear that. He promises to be with you even in the midst of it. Your Lord, he knows God's purposes for trials are for your very best. You cannot keep them from coming to you, dear Christian. So why waste your joy on anxieties that accomplish nothing but steal your present joy? The will of God is a wonderfully perfect and glorious thing. Its implications are manifold. We can never mind the depths of the glory and the perfection of his will and his counsel. And it is solely in his control. It cannot be thwarted. And he promises it for your good and his glory. Praise God for such a glorious salvation. I'm going to conclude now. Gone over again. What is your life, beloved of God? What is your life? It is far more worth than you can estimate. Can you estimate the value of the blood of Christ? Can you? Begin to do that. That blood which purchased your life for you. Now stop believing the foolishness that the world aspires to. It's garbage. It's a dead end. It's condemnation. It's a loss of reward in heaven. Repent of your pride of life that makes you fools and deceives you into trading eternity for the vanities of the world. You know, build for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Repent of the pride of life that makes you act like you are in ultimate control. Now, do you honestly think you control what is going to happen to you or your loved ones? Stop trying to carry a cross that is not really a cross, but the devil's and the world's plan for you. God won't let those plans succeed in your life because they are not in accordance with his will. So, so stop toiling away at it. You belong to him. Give it up. Take rest and peace in his sovereign control. And last, lastly, repent of your pride of life that makes you believe you are somehow independent of God and therefore a judge of God. Do you want this label, judge of God? I'm sure you don't. I am sure you don't. You, you couldn't 